My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the battle of ideas, finally on my podcast. Patrick Henningsen, thank you for joining me in the trenches. <laughs> a pleasure to be with you, Jim. It's about time. The difference between a climate change alarmist and a Jehovah's Witness is that one of them gets every doomsday prediction wrong and the other is a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> yeah, you should have said it. It's not a trick question. Yeah. <laughs> Did did you see the speaking of that? Uh, it was a glorious, a glorious moment uh, this past week. The University of Helsinki gave an honorary postdoctorate or a, a PhD to Greta Thunberg, and uh, believe it or not, it's for religious studies. If you can imagine, is, I saw is that. that not, isn't that, is that incredible? Real? Yeah, that's real. How fitting! Religious studies, clim climatism is the, the global religion. So, I mean, you can't really make it up. I mean, it's fantastic. So, Doctor Greta, Doctor Greta Thunberg, you must address her correctly. We're supposed to be dead by now, aren't we? Yep, according to uh, yeah, according to Al Gore, according to Greta. Actually, Greta said we would have been wiped off the face of the earth about five years ago. And then when the date passed, she went on this sort of tweet-deleting spree. But uh, luckily, some people screenshotted it, and it made the global news. I think that dealt a severe blow to her um, credibility. And then I think that's when the University of Helsinki stepped in to give her that PhD, just to shore up that credibility that was lost. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's funny that, um, you know, I, I'm I'm like uh, 500 meters from where the Mayflower left to start the United, you know, America, 400 years ago, and when you get to America, there's a place. I'm in Plymouth, UK, but when you get to America, there's a place called Plymouth Rock. That's the sort of settlement they started when they landed, uh, went off course massively, went off course, landed in Massachusetts, and there's a place called Plymouth Rock. It's been there for 402 years. And it's at the same exact sea level it was 400 years ago. So, hey, look, you know, Greta, St. Greta of the Rising Seas, right? Uh, it hasn't happened yet. But I guess if you keep preaching it, eventually, after a few thousand years, maybe it might rise. The, the, the rising sea levels, that's, that's really the basis of the doomsday for, for um, anthropogenic global warming, a.k.a climate change, man-made global warming. To be more specific, it's man-made CO2-driven global warming, if you want to be really specific. And um, that whole basis of the doomsday is the, is the sea levels rising. I mean, that, that was the core set piece, uh, the big feature. That was the money shot for uh, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth documentary. It was the rising seas are coming up on New York. And that's what sort of captivated the... Uh, the uh, reptilian brain of the population and to fight or flight. We need to do something now. And it uh, turns out to be completely ridiculous. But uh, most people, I think, went away from that um, with an emotional charge. You know, I know that mm. a lot of environmental activists and they felt like, and to this day, to this day, it's, it still motivates them, the, the core beliefs. So it, it is a religion, Jeremy. It is. And it's only fitting Greta got the, the theology doctorate. The honorary theology doctorate. What do you make of Greta, though? I, I mean, she's a little girl, and I, I feel like going after her is punching down. I think she's uh, she's nineteen now, so technically she's an adult. So you <laughs> could be 
punching, you know, laterally. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I mean, you're, you're definitely punching up. She's, she's got the weight of Greenpeace behind her, Jennifer Morgan, uh, the U.S. Uh, government, the UNIPCC, all of these different charities and NGOs, the, ma- the mainstream media, Davos, the World Economic Forum, they're all backing her. So, so yeah, you're kind of punching up, which is weird because she's kind of short. So she's only about five foot four. So you technically you would be if you were actually trying to punch her, you would be punching down. So I wouldn't recommend actual punches, but you know, for the well, metaphorical punches, you're punching up. But we saw what happened. If you do poke fun at her, you go into a Romanian jail for three months. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, man. And yeah, Andrew Tate, yeah. Ooh, yeah, he was really I think it was because he's such a whale on social media that uh you know if we if we i've i've taken swipes that are just tongue-in-cheek having fun with her on twitter by making jokes about her tweets and stuff like that um it's just a kind of thing to keep your brain occupied on twitter um but andrew tate yeah he he's a different cat because uh yeah he's got what a couple of million followers on on Twitter and a couple million more on Instagram and a couple uh, uh, tens of millions of, of viral videos swirling around all these different platforms uh, from all his supporters. So yeah, when he says something, that's definitely the establishment will take that as a major threat, as a, as a major affront to the narrative um, because the, the youth are their target on this. It's definitely, you know, it's tw- 25 and under that that's, that's their main target on this. You know, we're a lost cause. Our, we're the cynical mm-hmm. generation. You know, if you're born after 1999, you're just you're a lost cause. Basically, you know, you're you're cynical. You've got all these critical thinking, analog, uh, you know, remnants left, and you're questioning stuff. And you know, used to read books and physical pages and things like that, and use landlines to call people, and <laughs> wait for dates without a mobile phone, and you know, <laughs> and listen text- to CDs. <laughs> <laughs> listen to cds yeah or cassette tapes so yeah we're just a we're just a problem you know so we're not the target of that propaganda they don't care about us you know it's well, won or lost already for our generation what do you make of andrew he's an interesting character i don't it'd be, be interesting to have a, a a conversation with him um but yeah just from what i've seen he looks like incredibly smart really quick um, looks like a fast study, you know, he's, has a c- kind of good, deep understanding of interconnectedness of, uh, politics, geopolitics, culture, uh, religion, um, the, the kind of social engineering aspect finance. So yeah, kind of a lethal combination of, uh, skill sets there. So for, you know, being able to communicate ideas and stuff like that, aside from being, you know, uh, a talented fighter. Um, mm. yeah, so it's got that determination. I think it's that, that, that competitive, uh, that competitive drive that athletes have or that people work in a stock market and, you know, in finance, they're ultra competitive. Like they play to win. And he said in one interview that he grew up playing chess. His dad got the kids into chess really young and they, and they were into it. They enjoyed it. So obviously that's thinking, you know, six, seven, 12 moves ahead. You know, if you if you learn something that skill when you're young, uh, aside from that, also reading a lot. So probably avid readers when they're younger and stuff like that. So oddball kids, you know, savants of sorts, maybe slightly on the spectrum. 
Um, these tend to be, uh, you know, really quick learners and able to synthesize information and good verbal skills. Um, he's definitely very strong, you know, in terms of communicating and forceful in his arguments. So, I mean, that, that, that I think that's the secret to his viral success. He's very forceful mm. in, his argu- in his arguments. Very impressive. But you very conveniently left out the crux of what's going on. I Look, I have a, an opinion. I have a suspicion that the establishment is going after him. And yet, at the same time, I can also say that I don't necessarily approve of some of those older videos that, that he was making. Mm-hmm. And that's where it yeah. gets all gray and fuzzy. Yeah, you no, I'm with you on that. I mean, if, uh, if for instance, yeah, it could definitely be uh, interpreted a lot of his v- videos as uh, misogyny and extreme misogyny. And then also the reports that him and his brother Tristan, who also is very ad- uh, adept and a- amazing communicator as well, very lucid, but they're running a webcam girls business um, out of Romania. And so, you know, like it's. <laughs> As problems go, you know, it's like if, if you've got a lot of money and you're making a lot of money on all these different businesses, unless that's your main f- source of income, that seems to be something you sort of want to get out of that business at some point, just because of the seedy nature of it and the types of people that you'd be, you, you end up working with and who you have uh, relationships with, uh, business and whatnot. Um, all sorts of problems can come along and draft off of that sort of activity that you it's like why would you even want the headache so mm-hmm. that's like i know the money is probably amazing in that business but like if you could make your money elsewhere and they seem to be very talented uh why bother you know so that's a bit of an oddball isn't it it's hard to square that isn't it with the uh, fluid uh sage-like um, wisdom and uh, clarity and crystal clarity that you see in the Andrew Tate, the political pundit, the the the, ph- the philosopher, the life the life lessons teacher, the sage uh, for the for the young men uh, searching for their alpha. Uh, it's hard to square with that that yeah. webcam that webcam business. Um, and and he's probably thinking the same damn thing right now, sweating it out in a Romanian cell. They probably had a lot of time to think about their business. <laughs> what is interesting is that you look at his Playboy lifestyle and then you kind of feel sorry for Hugh Hefner. Like he was, he seems like a normie now. <laughs> I know Hefner was just, he had the smoking jacket, you know, wake up with the cigar, you know, pour, 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 a, pour a straight gin on the rocks, you know, that's, that's 9 a.m. But, you know. <laughs> Girls, what, what, what happened? What happened to the good old days of just having a mansion with girls in bikinis swimming? <laughs> yeah, wearing French maid outfits, cleaning up after everybody. <laughs> I know it's just uh, the bunnies and everything. So yeah, I mean Hefner's an interesting cat. Yeah, he's he's got an interesting backstory. I, mm. I don't I don't know it. Uh, I had read previously about it. A lot of those guys, those sort of uh, uh, adult publication magnates like Larry Flint, yeah, uh, from, from Penthouse. Uh, yeah, from Columbus, Ohio, Penthouse, and uh, Hefner. Uh, they've got interesting backgrounds that somewhat explain, you know, in, in a way why they got into the business they did. And in terms of Larry Flint, he became very politically active, very politically active later in life and really was a disruptor in uh, in, in U.S. politics on so many different issues. He was a, Wasn't there a movie a, about him? There was, yeah. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, could have been Woody Harrelson. I can't remember. 
Larry Flint. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, so if I got that wrong, folks, yeah, you can the, you can ding me on it? that score. The people, the people against Larry Flint. I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, pretty amazing. I drove by his mansion uh, in Columbus, Ohio, uh, a couple months ago. It's massive. Uh, nice neighborhood. But uh, yeah, interesting cop, interesting cat. Yeah, um, Hefner. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you live in the UK now. What? You're American. Why do you stay in the UK? Uh, mainly for work. Um, it's been just really good for media and also reporting in the Middle East, which I was doing a fair amount of for a number of years. So, um, but uh, yeah, America's um, moved around a lot growing up. So it's hard to, to identify an anchor place now in America as we moved so often uh, growing up. So, uh, but so going back, I am, I am kind of uh, surveying you know, it, it's always fascinating, but America is such a big uh, country yeah. that it's like, how do you decide where to settle down when you, uh, when you've been out of the country for a while? Um, and cities, uh, some of the cities are quite expensive now. So there's that, that shock of having left and seeing the price of everything is not the same as when you were there before. And it keeps going up, especially in the last couple of years. So, and Americans are, are hit pretty hard with inflation, I, much more so, I think, than in the U.K., in Europe, I mean, the inflation here on fuel and electricity is pretty is pretty massive, and they pay through the nose here for diesel and petrol. Uh, most of it's tax, but uh, in, in the states, you know, a sandwich and a bag of potato chips, twenty dollars. I mean, come on. Oh wow! So, I remember when that was like not long ago, seven ninety nine. So you know that gives yeah. you an idea, indication. Uh, ten, you know, eight, eight, eight dollars and seventy cents for a dozen eggs at Walmart. I mean, how did this happen? It's just bizarre. Well, you just created a beautiful segue. Take a listen to this. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again. Then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. That's the president of the United States of America. <laughs> now, just you imagine if that was Vladimir Putin saying that, if the shoe was on the other foot, you see how everyone yeah. denies that the U.S. did it, and, the, and half the world saying, well, what do you mean? The president just said he was going to do it on live television at, a, at an official press conference and was blazing about, uh, blatant about it. Uh, what do you mean? If that was Putin and then the Russia went and denied it after it blew up, I mean... What do you think the world, what the chorus of righteous indignation would be like? I mean, they'd be everyone would be, you know, calling for Russia to be turned into a glass crater like they were uh, before the Iraq War. You know how Westerners were. We've got to turn Saddam's Iraq into a glass crater. I can imagine how many times I heard that um, before the Iraq War. When you talk about propaganda, I mean, mm. there's. You've got media propaganda, you've got state propaganda, you got, you know, the the most insidious form of propaganda, and I've, I've done lecturing on critical studies of propaganda in multiple countries as a guest lecturer um, as well. I've even done that in Beirut, in Lebanon, and, you know, quite p politically and historically charged um, history there. But it's, it's the, the America and the West, I can speak because I'm within that society how people propagandize each other so it starts from the oracles of information and then you know penetrates 
the population, and then people will repeat to each other uh, just talking points, and it, most of them not true. Um, I've had some interesting uh, experiences on uh, Twitter Spaces, which is uh, these big discussion forums, and it, it's amazing how the tropes, the common tropes, because that people repeat about the war in Yemen or about the war in Syria or Bashar al-Assad uses chemical weapons against his own people. The Iran regime needs to be overthrown. Um, they're the number. Iran is the number one state sponsor of terror in the world. I mean, completely factually false in the extreme. But when it's repeated by the press, by all the pundits on Fox and CNN, by Mike Pompeo, by and repeated over and over for years, 15, 20 years of just repeating tropes, there is a large percentage of the population that Russians interfered in the 2016 election and put Donald Trump into power. The, the, most of that is a result of people propagandizing each other. Once once it's dropped down into the population, then it, it moves uh, laterally and it gets distributed um, by word of mouth on social media, maybe a lot faster now because of social media. Um, you know, it, they do a lot of studies and analytics on uh, government funded on disinformation now as a result of the hoax uh, called Russiagate that that's mm -hmm. opened up a flood of funding. And that's what we found out with the Twitter files, which I was in the Twitter files, by the way. Um, and I did get banned from Twitter for 16 months or something like that. So, but, so I have you know good personal experience with it. And, and uh, so, and I was, I was one of the first targets at the very beginning of this whole operation um, by the University of Washington uh, and a special lab they had to analyze Russian actors online and whatever. So I'd been labeled a, a Russian disinformation agent by the University of Washington. And there was a, a vendetta. Uh, one of their faculty apparently did not like me at all and singled me out for all the studies. You can go look it up online. And uh, it was it was because of the reporting I did on Syria and exposing the white helmets and things like that. Um, it also had been I'd done volunteer on air live analysis for RT, which is a big global channel before the war, you know, in Ukraine, before even 2014, when Russia was just a member of the international community <laughs> before 2014, they weren't sworn public enemy number one. But um, they, they put a lot of resources into analyzing what they call disinformation with heat maps and they said this this guy retweets that guy and these are all the problem accounts this is where the quote misinformation disinformation begins and it spreads all they're doing is mapping dissenting opinion but they've relabeled it as disinformation which is totally disingenuous and to call that academic is is a is a joke in the extreme what it is is it's authoritarian um surveillance of the population and their views and opinions and then doing data analytics in order to target certain accounts, draw blacklists, and then they hand those blacklists or they're available for the government to use to then go to the social media firms to say, what are you going to do about all these problem accounts? Look at all these bad actors you have on Twitter, Facebook, and then they panic and they say, yeah, we agree to, we'll, we'll take your blacklist and start deleting accounts, deleting tweets. All of that was exposed, and DHS is involved, FBI is involved. Um, so they use these academic institutions to give some, uh, the air of legitimacy that all they're doing is basically a massive surveillance and 
a speech control operation against their own population, but calling it academic study of uh, disinformation. I mean, it's, it's criminal in the extreme that universities would fund this stuff and that they would bring students in and indoctrinate them into this Orwellian kind of Sovietized uh, speech control operations uh, labeled as academic disinformation studies and all this other ridiculous stuff. And, uh, so, but, but that's the, that's the thing. Uh, all they're doing is mapping dissent and that should really send chills down the spines of people Mm. that there's billions of dollars being plowed into that, this type of activity, state funded, state funded and getting grants from the DARPA and from the military industrial complex, you know, and, and, and from the mainstream media are involved as well because they're, they're riffing off this stuff too, because they want to eliminate the competition in the blogosphere shows like this, other shows, uh, people on Twitter, that's all competition for the monolithic legacy media because they want to colonize and take over the internet. And they're trying to, they've done it with YouTube. They mm-hmm. bought the front pages and, They've done it with Google. They've bought all the searches, spots, you know, 10, 20, 100 deep. And they blacklisted a lot of alternative media accounts, which they, Google uh, deranked organically hundreds of alternative media outlets in April 2017, including my website, 21st Century 2017. 2017, right after, you can guess what the, where, where the impetus came from, right? Yeah. Is the election of Donald Trump that that caused the state of emergency in Silicon Valley, and where the political actors, Zuckerberg donor class, uh, the four-letter agencies in America, the mainstream uh, media magnets, they all got together and said, "We we we can't let this an election result like this happen again." And not only that, they want to control foreign policy conversations. And then COVID came. By that time, they had established the levers of control to control the vaccine conversation and then to attack anybody that's questioning lockdowns, to shut down accounts that are uh, questioning the existence or the legitimacy of the PCR test yeah, and the spread of the virus. And you know what the most censored view is? The most censored view is if you question the existence yeah. This is how partly how my accounts were erased uh, by Twitter and uh, rolling bands by Facebook. I question the existence of the variants, the Delta variant and this Omicron, you know, like ridiculous. But I question the variants and boom, uh, that, that that was the road. To, and the second thing, the last thing I did that got the, uh, the chop was uh, I said that the vaccine could be threatening fertility rates globally. And then that could lead to a depopulation trend. And that was it. I was off Twitter permanently, lifetime ban. And it wasn't until Elon the Compassionate, the new, the rule, <laughs> Elon the Compassionate, uh, the new ruling monarch uh, in San Francisco, uh, HQ, that I was allowed back on. So I do thank Elon the Merciful, Elon the Compassionate. <laughs> Uh, for not just mine, but so many other amazing uh, voices on this very issue. I had a, I, I sat in on a terrain theory discussion on Twitter. And you know what? And there was no doctors on there. There was, I mean, there was one doctor, mm. a, home, a homeopathic doctor. The rest were just really smart, very interested researchers. And the level of coherency on the discussion and the detail 
and I was blown away at how good mm -hmm. it was. And then I thought this, this would not have been allowed to happen six months ago on Twitter. BC. Period. Before COVID. Before, yeah, before, before uh, Elon. BE. BE. <laughs> BE. But, but that's the most censored view is the no virus position, yeah. Jeremy. That, that is the most censored view. What do you make of Elon? Um, a fascinating character. So he's like Howard Hughes with panache and high-tech zeal, and he's a big thinker, a futurist. He's, he's multi-talented. He's a good organizer. He's a great networker. Um, he's a good problem solver, and he looks very tenacious and doesn't take no for an answer. And so, yeah, that's the profile of a successful uh, entrepreneur and a businessman. Um, so, you know, you, doesn't, you don't have to be an innovator. If you're a good organizer and you're a good problem solver, you can bring in people to help solve problems. But you see you, your overview is such that you can see the whole process from mm -hmm. beginning to end and be able to have kind of an idea of if something's going to be successful and if it's going to meet another parallel effort and they will meet at some point in the future and create a revolution in technology or uh, in, in understanding of some systems, full systems uh, functioning and reinventing paradigms in, in, in industry and technology. You have the vision. You can see how they can converge in the future. You, you place your bets based on judiciously place your bets based on those outcomes, how they're going to converge in the future. And that's what he's doing. And uh, you only need to have one out of five come out aces um, to, to be considered successful. But he seems to but, be motivated yes. more than, than the average cat to do more than that, to have four but, out of five. But Patrick, the paranoid androids will tell you it's all a deception. He's out to get you. He wants to put chips into the back of your head. Neuralink, yeah. Neuralink's a conceptual thing. You know, I, I used to be more concerned about transhumanism before I really understood the, 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 the fraud of uh, virology as a science because it's so reliant on technology. Like, um, it's so reliant on genomic sequence uh, software and PCR testing technology, all of which are um, sort of high-tech high hocus-pocus uh, tech that, you know, and gene editing is another one, and mRNA, okay, one of the biggest frauds, marketing frauds in history so far, hasn't been shown to really work <laughs> at all, but everybody believes that uh, it's it's actively working in vaccines because the because of the hype. So, yeah, so from that point of view, uh, transhumanism as a cyborg culture um, overtaking humanity and us losing all of our human thing. Yeah, that's a little bit further of a worry in the future. More of a worry is what the, you know, genetically modified foods, what that means to the food chain, what that means to us ingesting those foods uh, to our health and to our, you know, D DNA health, our epigenetical health. If you listen to Bruce Lipton and some of these amazing guys, uh, so, yeah, so from that point of view, transhumanism, I'm more of a practical guy. So it's like I, I'm practical and pragmatic. If, if we have resources and technology, let's first use that to clean up the environment. Mm -hmm. Let's use that to eliminate toxic chemicals, the roundups, 
get why do we need GMOs when there's so much awesome organic and hydroponic technology? Why on earth do you need GMOs and chemicals to match that Monsanto will patent and make a seed that requires Monsanto chemicals for the seed to germinate? Why on earth do you need that? All that stuff leaches down into the water table. It doesn't make any sense. Forget about climate change. Why not solve the clear and present dangers that we face every day and, and clean water and things like this? That, that seems to be more of a priority than transhumanism or anything else. So that, I, I wish there was more interest in political uh, capital in that direction. But you know what? A lot of this stuff is vaporware, and vaporware attracts a lot of investment. So you can patent anything in the world. I could mm. five hundred fifty bucks. I can register a patent for whatever, uh, some exotic bioweapon. Doesn't mean it's ever going to ever see the light of day. But yeah. if I'm well, but if I'm well connected, if I'm well connected, I can raise some money off that. If I'm in the club, I'm in the DARPA club, or I'm in the NIH club, or I'm in the big pharma business, and my idea is just plausible enough that it might be possible and link up with somebody else's venture, then I could probably claw a few million out of the government or uh, big pharma or DARPA, and that'll kind of keep me going for a couple of years, hire some uh, lab assistants and publish a few uh, ridiculous papers on PubMed or whatever. And then, you know, when that money runs out, go for another round, make some hype that I we created something else and, you know, or, or start another scam. I mean, there's so much of this vaporware going on in these fields, this uh, scientific sophistry, virology being probably at the moment the king, the king of sophistry in pseudoscience because of COVID. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a gravy train. There's tons of these gravy trains. Big Pharma is a one giant gravy train. It's one giant gravy train. Uh, it doesn't do what it says on the box. It does something else, and it's not what they tell us it does. Um, and there's a whole other alternative uh, systems to health and healing and nutrition that if they gave them 10% of the R&D budget that pharma has, think of the advances that we could do. For me, one of the most important talking points in the last few years has been not just the existence of SARS-CoV-2, but the existence of any virus. And it dramatically changes everything. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I mean, and your your name was uh, just like <laughs> custom made for this uh, human event, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of germ warfare theory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's germ, germ theory, germ warfare. And uh, yeah, so that shot you right out into the stratosphere on that. So perfectly timed. You were waiting. It was the, it was the moment that you were born for, wasn't it? So, yes. Um, so for sure. And, and, and to your credit, you have been uh, not afraid to, you know, get on that conversation to talk to the right people on your and to use your show to um, and, and you're learning as you're talking to these people, you know, so, and that's the big benefit of doing podcasts or doing radio shows is that you get to talk to people more qualified than you and you get to get those insights and uh, get educated really quick on like a fast sort of curve on that. So, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It's that it's one thing. And it's funny, I, I go back and look at some of my first tweets and my old broadcasts uh, around sort of February, March, April, May of 2020, 
right? And so I was trying to figure stuff out. My place turned into a war room. I was obsessed. It was like the movie when they want to catch the serial killer and they put the big boards up on the wall and start attaching the strings and putting the photos and the clues and the paper clippings because you want to figure out how to catch this thing, figure out how this uh, – this, 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 uh, whatever is moving around and doing all these things. And so I was like, I took me, uh, like three or four days of intense study to try to really understand the difference between a case fatality rate, a CFR and an IFR. And so that, at, that was March. And so those were the issues I was dealing with because I was trying to learn epidemiology because I thought that because I saw Nutwitkowski, um, the epidemiologist from Rockefeller university, who uh, John Kirby interviewed in Perspectives on Pandemics. Now, early on, Kirby's videos and interviews were like a lifeline because there wasn't, uh, he was going and finding the people who ever had something cutting edge to say about the, about COVID, the pandemic, and how it's an over-exaggerated crisis and all that, and that we should be calming down. That was like manna from heaven for people that were just looking for sanity. And, uh, and so he had Wachowski on saying that we shouldn't be doing anything. It's just let, let it go. It's a normal herd immunity. And, and I thought, wow, okay, that sounds like common sense. And this is an epidemiologist. He's experienced. We got to be listening to this guy, um, to these, these sane epidemiologists. And so that was one level of understanding. And then the other things was uh, just kind of looking at the the policies, lockdown, social distancing, do the mask work, look at the studies, you know, look at the peer-reviewed studies. How do they really work? Can they prove they work? Can we just get rid of them? What, you know, are they more dangerous? Do they increase COVID and all this? And is COVID just really the flu? And so that was the one, that was the beginning gateway there. Is COVID just really the flu? Uh, once you get over the fear, the paranoia, because, you know, for a couple of days, probably for 48 hours when they announced the lockdown thing and all that, I was like, is there something going on here that, you know, I have no idea? Like, I don't have any concept of it. And, you know, the fear and you're just thinking, oh, shit, you know, I'm a I'm a career skeptic here and a seasoned uh, uh, tinfoil hat wearing uh, conspiracy heretic. But like, is there really something going on here? So, um, so what? It, so normally, what I do, I don't know about you, Jeremy, but you know, when I feel um, uh, insecure about an outcome or I'm feeling really uh, afraid or uncomfortable, what I do is I need more information. So that to me, that's the antidote to fear: is more information, more insight. So I just go deep. I went on a deep dive, and really didn't come out of that deep dive for like a mm -hmm. year. A year and a half and it nearly drove me crazy but so the, but the the epiphany came the real epiphany came when i interviewed david crow who was a experienced aids hiv whistleblower and researcher and he blew the whistle very early years and years and years ago on hiv and aids and the pcr test mm. And so I'd seen the Carrie Mullis interviews floating around about the PCR test. And that was like, okay, something's going on here. And then he was, he, David Crow was from Canada. And uh, one of my re, uh, research assistants, who was also a really good uh, journalist, his name's Miles, he tracked down David because he heard a podcast. He said, you got to talk to this guy. And so we, we arranged an interview and I put it on Sunday Wire. And we did a, I think it was a pre-recorder live, I can't remember. And it was like he explained that this, that this test is is not fit for purpose, mm -hmm. and here's why. 
And th- that gave me the confidence after that conversation. And the, and the sad part is David, um, after we had that audio interview, um, uh, two months, a month and a half later, he passed away very sadly. Wow. Um, yeah. And he's a legend, you know, to anybody who's like looking at the Perth group or mm. looking at the work of, uh, Sam Bailey, Sam did an interview, um, and, you know, as, as Sam, Sam and Mark have cited, uh, David Crow multiple times and, um, you know, a really kind and gentle, you could tell he, he really cared and he could see that the abuse of this, if this technology gets into the hands of the wrong, uh, powers, it can be weaponized, right? The PCR test. And that's what happened. So that's when that was, that was a big step for me that to, to then go to a no virus to question the, and so I was looking at Andy Kaufman and Tom Cowan and early on watched some of this, especially Kaufman, because he's got a really nice, smooth delivery. And I was like, I just like, no, this can't be, this is too, it's just too unbelievable. That, so you have to throw out the whole field of virology. So that's it. Everything flus, polio, the chicken pox, uh, mm. the mumps, measles, you name it. Just got what we got to chuck all that out the window. That's all gone. The, the, the Spanish flu of 2018, uh, 1918, what we're throwing that out, the Justinian plague, you know, what is this? No viruses. What are you talking about? We can't let that go. It can't be, it just can't be. Uh, and so, and so what was that? That was, that's, that's the most important concept because the virus is the external, uh, vector. It's, it's omnipresent. It's invisible. It's submicroscopic. You can't even see it with a microscope. And it's, it's potentially threatening and waiting to attack at any moment. And you don't know until the experts, the high priests with the white coats and the epidemiology, uh, biostatisticians, when they say, when they say that it's on the loose, that's when it's happening. And that's when you got to lock down or take your prophylactic hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or whatever to protect yourself from this onslaught of this invisible wave that's coming this variant this strain it's coming so it, and then you i watched that film contagion i didn't watch any of those pandemic films during the pandemic i waited because i just couldn't i just didn't want to and i watched contagion and the opening scene yeah opening <laughs> scene you know what i'm talking about the bird flying over a pig yeah. farm the bird takes a dump into the pig swill and a pig eats the swill with the bird dump and then somebody working on the pig farm starts sweating and sneezing and next thing you know the whole world has gone to hell okay so there's a zoonotic fantasy animal to animal to human and then i'm reading the one health agenda that the who and all these countries are trying to wrap around now as the new framework it's all based on the zoonotic jump from animal to human of viruses and meanwhile we don't have so then we i want to go back to wuhan and find out if there's this is there any evidence of a novel sars cov2 virus in wuhan that's how it all started right you think that's where it all started so then uh, when sam bailey dr sam bailey made that video um about wuhan uh mm. yeah, so i forgot what the title is but something funny happened at wuhan or something like that and it lays it out perfectly and there's no virus in wuhan and there there was you know they they pcr tested this 
phlegm sputum sample of one patient and then extrapolate that on the computer to a genomic sequence that was based on the SARS-1 computerized sequence, and they've ran with that. And then Christian Drosten ran with that as the basis for the PCR test globally. And next thing you know, we have a global pandemic. From How could you extrapolate 30 people sick in China, and how can the WHO declare a, a, a novel pandemic, on a world pandemic on the on the back of that, how would they have any possible idea of how transmissible and this and that? And it's just incredible to think about it. But they did it. They did it. And it worked. And and so, yeah, and, and since then, all the pieces have come into place. So I, back to your original point, Jeremy, that when you question the existence of the virus because the science of virology has trouble pro pro providing proof of it, cell cultures, PCR tests, a lot of sophistry, but no actual, like, show me the money. Where is this thing? Where's the unicorn? Show me the unicorn, like Jeremy Maguire. So yeah. where is it? And and so then the fear drops. Then all of a sudden you don't have to, that's one thing you don't have to worry about in life sub subconsciously, right? You don't have to, you're not under attack from all these microscopic pathogens anymore. Yeah. And you, you're, you're seeing your health in a different way, and you're, you're thinking about the, the, the health of your terrain, of your body, what you're putting in it, how you're feeling. Uh, if you're stressed out, you're going to be more acidic. Uh, you're prone to have a major toxic purge, i.e. a flu. Um, when you're upset, when you're angry, when you're stressed, when you're overworked, when you're not sleeping. Mm. And doesn't that make more sense? It does ultimately make a lot more sense yeah but it's it, it it goes further than that it it kind of makes you question the entire field of almost antibiotics and vaccines 100 percent. and then i read the book uh dissolving illusions yes <laughs> and you interviewed the author didn't you yeah a few times roman bistrianic Roman Bistronic, and he, I don't know the name of his colleague, but uh, they co-authored that book. And, Suzanne Humphreys. Suzanne Humphreys. And that's the, that's the history of vaccines. And I was reading Edward Jenner's notes and the, 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 the forgeries and the, just the ridiculous experiments. Like, how could this pass for anything? Science, like taking a scalpel and like cutting mm -hmm. someone's arm and then taking snot from something and stuffing it under the dead skin and then patching it up and then like doing observations of whether of whether it's infected or not of course it's going to get infected you know so the science back then was so shoddy and that the, the vaccine technology up until recently was based on jenner just crackpot science totally insane and then the whole field of virology is the first real experiment was the mosaic tobacco virus and you're looking at the methodology you're looking at the experiments that uh this this eminent virologist the, the father of virology had done it, it's the most ridiculous scientific observations and experience it wouldn't it wouldn't even pass a junior high school level of scientific rigor it's so bad but that's the that's the holy grail of virology so the whole the whole thing is built on a, a house of cards um, but but it's it's got a lot of money. It's got the power of government and corporations behind it. It's got the mainstream media behind it. So hey, who who are you to question? You know the the holy grail of uh, 
of, of pharmacology. That's it's virology is the goose that lays the golden egg for big pharma. Because without without yeah. virology, there's no drug solutions. So there's no problem reaction solution. You need the problem, and the problem is the virus. Otherwise, there's no point to have this uh, exotic and uh, expensive R and D solutions. And you know, like uh, how important the drug companies were in this so- pseudo pandemic. Mm. You know, but yeah, I mean, but again, it, 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 at the time, Jeremy, I thought, no, it can't be that simple. It can't be that simple. It must be something else. So I'm, I'm going to ignore these no virus maniacs, these crazy conspiracy yeah. theories. They've gone way too far. You know, I, well, let, let's deal with the practical considerations here. There is a virus and uh, we need to take more ivermectin and early treatment and all that stuff. Great, great. You know, if you're a doctor, what do doctors do? They prescribe drugs. I'm not going to blame them for that. Doctors mm-hmm. are there to alleviate suffering and to make their patients feel better. That's a doctor's job. And so I'm not going to blame a doctor if he feels that he has pharmaceutical products that are going to do that. Um, that's his job, and that's between him and the patient. But, you know, if you're saying that this, there's an alternative way to look at that situation, um, then that's also legitimate too. But what we had is people attacking any alternative opinion, viciously attacking, censoring, deplatforming you know, uh, smearing, defaming, all of that stuff. So that that's that's a bit of a problem going forward. And I see less and less of that, Jeremy, now. I see a lot of people that are afraid to attack that position because I think deep down a lot of people are realizing, yeah. you know, th- th- there's a massive fraud that has been perpetrated. And I don't think it's, it's fully sunk in yet. I saw recently an article by Mike Eden, on conservative yeah. woman, you saw that. So he's he's tepidly sort of pushing the boat out carefully. They're not too hard, but he's saying I'm I am entertaining the possibility that there might have been no COVID nineteen. So Patrick, that's Fashion, fashionably yes. late to the party, but but we welcome him as a VIP guest. He has something else that has occurred to me, Patrick, and it really is the 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 non importance of titles. I don't care mm-hmm. about the paperwork. It did before. I I, I mm. put a lot a couple of years ago. I put a lot more. Um, uh, you know, you know the th- the thing that made me more cynical is when I went through uh, to do a master's degree, and when I finished, I did pretty well. A couple of years ago, I went back late to do international relations, political science, and I I could have continued to do my PhD immediately after, but I I didn't want to do it. I I, I thought I'd take a break. I'll think about it. You know, I think about it. But then having taken the research methods classes and understanding the whole, you know, uh, epistemology, epistemology, methodology, uh, ontology, um, how, how we come up with our f- philosophical paradigms, how we, how we decide what is what in the world, the hierarchy of things, how we know what we know, how the methods we use to create our studies, experiments, our control experiment, our placebo – and, it, and I did pretty well in that class, and uh, I got a distinction, actually. And, <laughs> but, but from that, I realized reading some of these PubMed papers, they're not following the scientific method. Mm. Not even close. There's no control experiments. The methodology is completely circular in terms of the, uh, the reasoning. They're using research tools like PCR testing, abusing the use of these 
as like their diagnostic tests or like they like they actually tell you what anything is. Um, and then there's a whole reliance on technology like metagenomic second generation genomic sequencing, which is just computer uh, magic. It's software magic. That's all it is. And so how, how is any of this science? So it, it, it doesn't even work. And so like, you don't need the qualification. You just need to understand the rules of the game. When you understand the rules of the game, the, the, the game that they're playing, and they're bending the rules to their own game. And that's virology in a nutshell. Mm. It's totally unaccountable. And the entrance of technology in it has allowed people to game the system of this science that they've pieced together, which isn't really a science. Virology is not a science. It's a, what, what, what's a better way to categorize it? It's kind of, um, it's not a science at all. It's, uh, it's kind of a fake science. It, I don't know. It's, uh, it's sort of the bastard child of pharmacology, really, to be honest. You know, I, it's, it's, and now it's a cult. It's a corporate scientist, scientism cult, a corporate scientism cult. That's what modern virology has become. And it's based on the yeah. fear of the all-powerful, almighty COVID or the almighty coronavirus. And they have these computerized artistic renderings of the virus with the spike proteins. Always CGI. And, yeah. So it's a religion. This is a religion, but it's a dark religion because mm. it's, it's fear-based. There's no salvation in the religion, the cult of virology. There's no salvation. Salvation is only found in the holy communion of the pharmaceutical product, right? So, I mean, this is just the it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Like, I have nothing against trauma medication, and you know, there's solutions in pharmaceuticals that are good for relieving trauma and helping people get from A to B. And people, some people need that. Everybody at some point probably is going to need that in their life. But that's one thing. But then you're looking at the prophylaxis, like yeah. vaccines. Are they doing more harm than good? Are they actually causing the diseases th which they're blaming on viruses um, and other conditions, uh, unrelated conditions as well, health conditions, infertility, HPV vaccine? That's a complete disaster. Yeah, by yeah. I mean, so, um, so yeah, just, just that one thing I think, and they'd really defend these, don't they? And the talking points are interesting. They say vaccines work. How many times have you heard someone repeat that? Safe it's and effective. An, it's tweet vaccines work explanation point safe and effective. And if you, if you, if you went against that, if you, then you're a, you're a anti-vaxxer, you're a vaccine denier, you're a COVID denier. But so much energy and resources put into defending this little sort of, you know, section of the whole pharmacological world, vaccines, and it seems like it's sacrosanct, like you can't go there. Like it is the most defended fortress within the, the kingdom of pharmacology is vaccines. Why is that? Why, 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 why? That's the question. I think human psychology, in-group, out-group psychology. A lot of people are conditioned through school, through society, through family, through their social networks to want to be in the in-group at all times. And you, you'll do and deny a lot of things, you know, right? Mm. To be in the in-group, you know, or, or to be on a career path that will put you in an in-group and uh, raise your social status. And with all that, all the kudos that come with that. Now, 
So that's that's a big thing. And if you didn't, if you be, if you get labeled an anti-vaxer, um, this could have during COVID it had severe implications mm. and to, to your career, to your earning potential. Um, I know, I you know too. I know that I've, you may have spoken about this. Others have spoken about it. Couples breaking up over this issue in the last three years, husbands and wives, boyfriends mm-hmm. and girlfriends, parents and children, parents that are anti-vaxxers, who children who are at university being brainwashed and indoctrinated, getting all the boosters, and the parents not. I saw that happen multiple times. Husbands and wives. Husband doesn't want it. Wife says she wants it. Mm. Banning you from family gatherings if you don't get it. If you're not vaccinated, can't come to the, uh, you know, Sweet 16 birthday party or the reunion. Insane. So that level of division, there's something powerful going on there. I, I It is deep. It's, it's a religion, but it's yeah. an unofficial religion. Add to that that many on our side will not talk about the existence of viruses. Yeah, yeah. So the health freedom movement, right? Mm. And the leaders within the health freedom movement. And I think we spoke about this before. Um, so but it's it's okay to kind of go over it again, because it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, because there's different people that have different skill sets, and also are invested in different career paths. So if you're from the world of vaccines and vaccinology, you're like a Gert Vandenbosch, right? From Gavi. Used to work, you know, get paid by Bill Gates and the WHO. You're vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. Um, so they're saying that, uh, oh, well, you know, it could be a leaky vaccine, a leaky vaccine. Interesting concept. Um, and it, it's it's causing a, a vaccine escape. The virus is escaping because it's not the right vaccine. And you shouldn't vaccinate during a pandemic. Because then the virus can escape, and then it can come back, and then you get antibody-dependent syndrome, and it'll be more virulent second time around. You know that's why vaccines are this vaccine's bad. Vaccines are good, but this vaccine's bad. So the, the, I call this mental gymnastics. This is mental gymnastics, and it's really total sophistry. But when everyone's desperate and afraid, people will listen to all sorts of different options to get an explanation to what's going on. And then you have, and so, of course, for the vaccine lover and the vaccinologist or the Robert Malones of the world, COVID is real. SARS-CoV-2 is all-powerful, and it's it's the rock star of respiratory viruses, and we can't go there. can't question its existence. That's akin to uh, blasphemy in that but world. But it was leaked from a lab. But, yes, but it was a leak from a lab. It wasn't as, and I love this workaround. They say, Oh, I believe, I believe, I believe that something, something was released. Something was released. It wasn't as serious as what they wanted it. They wanted it to be worse, but it wasn't. They actually, no, they just wanted to release something. And it it is only as bad as the flu. It was only as bad as the flu. In fact, it wasn't even as dangerous as the flu, but it was, it was still potentially vicious. And they didn't know, and they were playing with it in the BSL-4 lab. Whatever. I mean, how crazy. So to, to try to string all these subplots together, you got to be a hell of a conspiracy theorist. These people got tinfoil hats that are like out of our price range. Okay. <laughs> I've got a cheap tinfoil hat. 
I got to make my own. They've got Louis Vuitton tinfoil hats. <laughs> they they use high, high carbon steel hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, graphene oxide lining on the inside. <laughs> no, it's crazy. So, um, so lab leak. Yeah. And so, of course, then that's China, 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 China virus, China virus. So that fills the geopolitical the geopolitical requirement to uh, have a, bo- a new bogeyman uh, to blame for the collapse and destruction of the U.S. economy and all the pain and suffering that went with that and kids losing two years of school education and uh, ending up being completely uh, uh, mentally handicapped and emotionally distraught generation. All China's fault, all China's fault, and Fauci's fault as well, and Fauci's fault because Fauci, fund- the NIH funded... Eco Health Alliance, Peter Daszak, we've got the documents and we've got the patents. Look, they patented SARS spike protein back in 2004, whatever. Again, um, you can patent a mythical spike protein that you've never seen that only exists on a computer next to the fear and cleavage site and the ACE2 receptors and all of these other theoretical constructs that people use to explain what they think is the phenomenon which they are observing in the cell culture, okay, or based on their PCR results. And it's just so circular um, how the, the, the science and the, the methodology, the, the thought process behind it, it's like a world onto its own. Like, the, yeah. it's, I think it's the biggest racket. It's one of the biggest science rackets going. And bi- is bioweapons and bioresearch and biosurveillance so I, personally, I think the most obvious explanation is if the U.S. did offshore funding for, quote, gain-of-function research, which sounds really impressive, gain-of-function, that mm. uh, will train Ebola or train the virus to have greater fitness. So the virus can do a high jump of two or set the you know Olympic stadium out for the virus and look at them there, increase their high jump by t- uh, 0.200 microns. We've we've done it. We've do, we've achieved gain of function. Ridiculous. So n- there's there's no there is no proof of any developments, reportable developments of quote gain of function in the world of virology. They can't even find the virus and show it to you and isolate it in a purified, isolated form. How on earth could they prove that they achieved gain of function um, by saying that it, they killed all the animals in the experiment by injecting? Uh, a cell, uh, a cell mixed brew with all sorts of junk in it down the uh, pharyngeal nasal passages of ferrets or uh, monkeys, and then they're all they're all dead. And so, of course, I'm in charge of the experiment. Uh, Must have been a more virulent virus there. It's uh, yeah, they're, the ferrets are dead. It must be the virus. It wasn't us, of course. It wasn't all the antibiotics and all the stuff we injected into their brain. Uh, of the mice. No, no, it's the virus. Okay, good. That's another 5 million in funding. Thank you very much. Keep the gain of function gravy train going. And let's let's send 5 million via EcoHealth Alliance or whoever uh, to do some subcontracting at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's, it says it on the building, the Institute of Virology. There must be virology stuff going on in there. And uh, yeah, and then this thing uh, happens uh, the the so-called pandemic happens, and uh, in the in late 2019, and 
So there's no there's no provable gain of function. Not Ralph Barrick in in North Carolina. The academic papers saying because you PCR tested and you've got some dead animals and whatever doesn't prove that a you have a virus or b there was any gain of function. But but uh, if you can't legally do that, maybe there's a whole cloak and dagger game maybe behind this. But you take it, you you implant it into China. Everybody in China, all the virologists, all trained in the West with Western methods, Canada, U.S., London, Paris, okay, Germany. And, of course, they have the same tools that our people have. They speak the same language as Fauci. They believe all of this sophistry and pseudoscience. And they have their own gravy trains they need to fuel. So they take this on. And so there's the Trojan horse for the future as the backstory. And so, yeah, the China virus. So, of course, yeah, Trump started saying this early. Most likely Trump got a classified briefing probably in late 2019 showing that, uh, oh, we think uh, Mr. President, morning briefing, uh, Mr. President, um, we think we there, there, there's a potential uh, lethal respiratory virus and we've, you know, our people and we have good contacts via EcoHealth Alliance and uh, we think it's uh, on the move in Wuhan, jump from a bat to a civet or maybe, but we think it might come out of the lab because the Chinese are working on some pretty scary stuff. And so when this happened, Trump was China virus, China virus. Did you notice that? Mm. He was all over it. So he already had been, he, Trump had already been, this is my guess. He'd already been given the talking point, and his staff all had the same briefing. So that's my guess. And so the intelligence services, British and American, working behind the scenes like busy little bees that they are in advance, putting all the pieces into position. And then so when it happens, then Wuhan becomes the 19 Arab hijackers of the global pandemic. Because mm. the 19 Arab hijackers was the backstory for 9-11. That's the backstory that keep keeps everybody guessing and infighting. And there's other there's other subplots to 9-11 too, like how did the buildings come down? And, and then were the there even planes. Or were there even planes, right? And so the, and then you have the obvious anomalies like Building Seven, uh, that wasn't hit by a plane, or the Pentagon, which there's no evidence that was hit by a passenger airliner. But hey, you know, I'm just going by the the lack of <laughs> The lack of images and the lack of evidence tells me there is nothing there. But I know that's a controversial statement there because uh, the, when the party said, don't believe what you see with your own eyes, that's a direct order uh, from the party. So so it's it's the backstory. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the backstory. It's the fallback position. And if you're going to, I think, engineer a global pandemic, you need multiple fallback positions and you got to keep the skeptical community busy you have to keep the scientific community busy you have to have an air of questions so you have to construct a paradigm two false choices zoonotic transfer or lab leak the third choice is off limits which is there was no novel SARS-CoV-2 virus and there's no actual evidence for it that's not allowed in this paradigm mm -hmm. the establishment have given you two choices right now they are favoring lab leak as the official state conspiracy theory. Before that, it was zoonosis. But the two will be will move forward together as both equal possibilities, and the issue will remain unresolved. China will be implicitly blamed, and Fauci will be universally hated by many, which he already was before. It's not a big deal for Fauci. He didn't take a pay cut. 
he's not going to get his pension docked. You know, he, he's, he's going to uh, retire in the sunset, play golf, do a little boating, maybe some crabbing in Chesapeake Bay. You know, so he's, he's all good. And he'll collect his royalties because it was all legal. And so but that's and the maybe thing. It was legal. Yeah, it was legal. If you took it into a court of law, mm-hmm. um, Fauci did nothing illegal. Unfortunately, everyone wants to nail Fauci, and for good reason, right? He's a he's a, cor- a corrupt little wizard, maestroing over the biggest fraud ever. But he, in truth, he's been doing this for thirty years. So wake up, folks. You know what do you think Fauci was doing during the uh, the AIDS HIV crisis? He was the gatekeeper for funding. That's that's his job. He's the bagman for the pharma industry, which is funny because his first job. Do you know what his first job was? Did we speak about this before? No. His first job when he was twelve years old, he was a bicycle delivery guy for the local pharmacy. He so he delivered yeah. drugs by bike. <laughs> that's Fauci's first job. Gee, isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, I don't know if it was his family's pharmacy or if it, or if it was just the local pharmacy, but. Um, I think he said this in an interview. Um, but yeah, so he's he's a lifer in, in this industry. So he's going to go down with the ship. Doesn't matter. So he took one for the team. This is what, where all of this leads you. I mean, how many people have you interacted with now in the last couple of years? You've suddenly started saying, I don't know what's true anymore. Right. It, 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 exactly. They say, I don't know what to believe anymore. Or everything. How many times have you heard this, Jeremy? Uh, everything they told us was a lie. Our whole yep. lives. Have you heard that? Mm. That's a mem, okay? A mem, uh, memetics, the science of memetics, a mem. A mem is is the equivalent of a mind virus. A mind. But then we sing, the word viral and virus is so ubiquitous in our language now um, that we think viruses spread and they self-replicate and they magically spread. So it, it, even when I say mind virus, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's it's contagious. The idea is contagious. So not not the physical. It's the metaphor for a virus. The irony of that is in the physical world, there's no proof of it's you can't show proof of a contagion virus using the tools that virology uses. They haven't been able to do it. Mm. So in the physical world, doesn't use. But in the virtual world, it's legit. Ideas replicate and spread like wildfire. And so do computerized constructs and computer models and all and fear and all these things. So virtually, yes. So it's a mind virus. A mind virus. I've been lied to about everything. Nothing they, they lied to me about everything in school. People are saying this to themselves. And then they say it in communities. And the problem is that this is nihilism. This is the basis of uh, nihilism, which is, you know, a totally black pilled dark um exasperation ultimately it represents defeat but then you can commiserate with your tribe um or or your peer group that feel the same way as you and you can have some common understanding through this this belief or this this anger that you've been lied to about everything and then this can lead to you'll start entertaining flat earth theory and, and all these stuff, you probably met people that recently got into flat earth, which is bizarre. 
it, it, but it is fascinating. <laughs> I, it is I fascinating. Love the, I love the topic. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a fast. I think, yeah, it is a fascinating topic. I think it's more fascinating about humans and how they process information and how they come to consensus within mm -hmm. small peer groups um, and and religions and cults and things like that. And um, so, so yeah, flat Earth is like the uh, ultimate expression, in my view, of nihilism and ultimately defeat because it's the there's boss no level <laughs> it's the boss level there's no victory in flat earth i mean this it's it's a complete um it's it's just basically yeah i've i've reached the end of the video game of life mm. and um and you're just floating at that point and there's a certain amount of bliss in that and there's a certain amount probably maybe some satisfaction but there's also some of these things any esoteric knowledge there uh, one of the motivations for pursuing esoteric knowledge whether that's egyptology or freemasonry or religion deep study of, of religions and uh, or flat earth flat earth is 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 a modern esoteric um thought thing so it's the exclusivity of getting to the end of the game to the end of the, to the level 200 or whatever it is in whatever that video game is you get to the final level and then all is revealed the truth is revealed the design, the grand design is revealed and it is X, Y, or Z. It is this, it's flat earth, for instance. Um, and so th that's an exclusive club and, you know, you can commiserate with your fellow members and, um, and, and yeah, and that's cool. You can have a pint, you know, <laughs> and just relax because you've reached <laughs> the end of the game. So fuck all this. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. And there's a certain amount of peace and tranquility in that. And you know what? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I wouldn't want to rob that from anybody. Mm. Um, not even the most ardent flat earther. They're I'm I'm pro religion. I'm pro freedom of religion. Church, synagogue, mosque, whatever. Uh, it's your right to believe what uh, you want to believe and to believe the world that you're living in is is x y and z whatever so that's that's fine but maybe the problem is the problem is i think that uh if it engenders a dark negativity um and then that is also contagious too um virtually contagious and and so that maybe that's not a positive thing so and I don't think I, I wouldn't want to get to the end of the game. I, you know, the, if you're if you're a searcher of the truth, what you do realize throughout life is there is no end to the game. The game continues, and it, you never get to to the top level, because after any level, just when you think that's the top level, there's a hundred more after that, and then you might go right back to the level one at the beginning and say, actually, no, I want to be at level one. I don't even want advanced esoteric knowledge. Just give me a a gardening patch. A cabin by the uh, a cabin uh, by the river, a fishing pole, and uh, a couple of other things, and I'm happy out in Siberia, whatever, out in the bush. That's it. Um, yeah. So I mean, and that's that's part of the cycle as, as well. It's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. Why why do we believe what we believe? And it, these traumatic periods of you know this this is the big COVID the pandemic is the biggest human event in modern history and i will argue the biggest in human history because it's because it was global and it cascaded yeah. and that makes it biblical it it it, it, it should be viewed on the level mm. of, of a biblical level so i if, think you're right so, 
And so then we bring in the Christians and bring in the Muslims, bring in the Jews now because they can have that conversation. What does this mean in terms of eschatology, end times eschatology in your book of Revelations or whatever your religion is? This is a good conversation to have. We can finally have it. Yeah. I think also, Patrick, uh, I mean, I agree with you on the on the nihilism and the black pill stuff. I'm a very, very big fan of trying to get beyond that. I think it's a dark place to be. I was there in 2020. I was taking antidepressants and other prescription drugs and drinking too much. And then I decided to turn that around. Um, but after that comes the white pill, which is essentially doing something with that information. And I think that's very liberating and very beautiful because you realize that Okay, a lot of stuff may, might be fabricated and false and whatever else, right? And it is quite exciting to, to figure out what is... For example, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Ancient Apocalypse by Graham Hancock. It's on Netflix. Yeah, well, and that's, fa- and it's, that's um, infinitely fascinating, right? And even where you are in the world, even more so, because you have you know one of the oldest civilizations mm-hmm. on the planet, um, in the Cal, you know, around the Kalahari region and things like this. So, I mean, South Africa is incredible. Africa, full stop. But especially where you are. But yeah, um, yeah, those are great conversations. Uh, Grant Hancock is amazing um, in terms of expansive thinking. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, ultimately, that's the. Yeah, when you start talking about the the origins of mankind, the existence of mankind, the nature of mankind, that to me is the ultimate. Did I say mm. mankind? That might get you canceled. Uh, a person, we a person kind, please. Person kind, yes. Current person, person is just so <laughs> confusing. But um, just yeah, just mankind. Yeah, mankind. Whatever. I'll take that. But I mean, those those culture wars which that you're alluding to, I mean, those are very low resolution and yet they are exceptionally mm-hmm. benign. They are they are there daily and they dominate. They dominate yep. everything. Yeah, they do. They do, but they're virtual. Um, I think the thing that's the biggest threat from the culture wars is when you start wanting to change the language um, and then have compelled speech or, you know, you have to address somebody by their pronoun. Now, I know people who work in education and all the training, equity, diversity, inclusive training, all the, the you know the Zoom calls they have to do every month on the latest upgrade. Like there's new pronouns. We've got to get the new in the top 10. We're going to add like five new pronouns and you got to be up to date on this because the kids are, are hip to this on TikTok. So you're going to encounter it in the classroom setting, blah, blah, blah. Look, it's craziness. It's craziness. But um, at the end of the day, it, the reason the culture wars and the, you know, compelled speech and language and pronouns, a lot of the reasons it's basically been allowed to advance as far as it has is because people were just, you know, completely scared or felt like um, they felt like they, it was progress. And yeah, they, maybe it was kind of a side thing. And a lot of people didn't realize it was a stealth it was a stealth movement that gained steam. And by the time people realized the velocity that it had, um, it had already overtaken tons and tons of decision-making levels and institutions and things like that. So to the point where it was a force, it was a tsunami of ridiculousness that the ultimate, whereby the ultimate uh, achievement of this 
this tidal wave of farcical ridiculousness was watching Leah Thomas uh, in the women's swimming in NCAA championships in America. And you're looking at the metal podium there and you've got, (laughs) you've got the bronze, silver and gold. And I see a couple of, you know, average looking gals there, five foot four, maybe (laughs) tall or five, seven. She looked pretty tall. And then there's a six foot four bloke like wearing a girl's suit with tackle and you're like <laughs> how 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 did this happen and he's number one <laughs> and he swam for the men's team like the previous two years ago and I'm like, so i was a competitive swimmer right so i was a competitive swimmer from the age of seven they threw us in that seven training at seven until i was 23 and i swam ncaa uh four years four years and I, when we trained co-ed, so I trained with girls, guys, we trained together. And I can tell you as a guy that we sandbag, we sandbagged it so hard in training. <laughs> the girls never did. The girls worked their tails off. They trained much harder than the guys. They're more dedicated. They made more practices. They called in sick less. The girls kicked ass. Girls were always kicking ass. The girls kicked ass so much in practice that some of them overtrained and didn't do so well sometimes in the competitions if they were sprinters, whatever. But the point is, there's girls that were working for 10 years to get on that podium, 10 years, 15 years of their life since they were kids. They dreamed about that moment. And then a guy steps in and says, no, I'm going to, I've decided I'm a woman and I'm going to win. I'm going to blow doors. And it takes the gold, sets the record. And all the administrators and the bureaucrats and the athletic directors and the school faculty, and they're all just sitting back there quietly saying, this is okay. This is yeah. fine. We need to be inclusive and understanding. Because if we don't let this, this, this Hulk compete with the girls, where is he going to go? And I'm like, he's going to go back with the guys. He can wear the suit. That's cool can have long hair that's cool take the hormones if you need to there's no problem there we'll t- you know the guy should the guys should be absorbing that problem but what they do they've thrown uh, uh body dysphoria and uh, uh identity politics extreme fetish that whole problem and they threw it into the girl's side and said to the women you deal with that and so it's and if all it does is it pushes women to the back. So women fight for equal rights. They fight for feminists fight for decades to get to the front, to, to get equal rights, to, to get a, a seat at the table and every table. And then after all that battle, that epic battle of generations and the right to vote and all the way to the, then the, the guys say, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to put the wigs on. We're going to wear the dress and wear women. And you can just get to the back of the bus basically. And that's what happened. It's an attack on women. And then the, the mm-hmm. women who allowed it to happen are really the ones to blame. And the people yeah. that, that they, and they did so because they thought it would be a more powerful political, political coalition. They wanted to expand the rainbow to add more stripes. They thought it would be, and they could leverage that into political power. And it comes down to that, Jeremy, the, the, the selfishness and greed of political power. That's where I think a lot of this emanates from. It has nothing to do with anything of, you know, I mean, transgender, are you, I mean, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. It's a total construct. 
but where does it come from? Why is it allowed to propagate? Because there's political power in it. There's political capital to harvest. And with that, you can do things with that. You can defeat your opponents with that. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, if you want to look at cultural Marxism or, you know, deconstruct yeah. that whole thinking, it really comes down to politics and power at the end of the day. And behind that is money, money and power. Yeah. And then because of the quotas, we need to hire this. We need to recognize that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They're giving, I think it was Credit Suisse basically tanked and crashed as a bank. And their global marketing head was trans, a guy who got, who's, who's, binary, who's flu, binary fluid. In other words, he can change during the week. And, uh, <laughs> He got like top, uh, he was Forbes magazine or one of these, I, I forgot the <laughs> top female executive, top 100 female executives in the world. And I thought, wow, you go girl. You just shattered that glass ceiling, you know, good job. And I'm thinking if that's what credit Swiss and these banks are, they're obsessed with. And Silicon Valley bank was doing woke weeks and, uh, you know, having like funding all these excursions for a week of pride and pride month in July and all these trips and uh, seminars and equity, diversity, inclusion, uh, compliance and all this stuff. So, I mean, that's where these companies are at. It's mm-hmm. to me, it's just a complete waste of money and it's fueling um, a massive industry. There is a big industry behind this commercially with the fashion, also with pharmaceuticals, surgery, um, and then hormones and um, all sorts of things. I mean, but those the surgeons, media, yeah. they should take a stand. Yeah, that's uh, there's there's something wrong about that. But you know, like surgeon, a lot of the plastic surgeons are mercenaries. They don't care. Mm, mm. They'll do anything for the for the price if the price is right. And if they're good, if they're good, they'll probably think, well, they're going to get it done with somebody else. They might as well do it with me because I'm better. I'm a little bit yeah. more expensive but I'll do a good job and, uh, and I'll yeah. get a nice Lambo. Yeah. A couple of Lambos. Yeah. And for the kids. Yeah. It's a good business. <laughs> it's a good business. Celebrities. You're, you're, you're basically cashing in on the vanity at the end of the day. You know, it's, just, it's vanity driven well, economy. You're standing on the battlefield of the information war and you're looking at now at the enemy that's in the distance. What is it that you see? Hmm. Wow. What do I see in the distance? I don't know. It's not so much in the distance. We're kind of I'm, I'm, we're in the middle of the, the the battlefield. It's 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 full on. It's like a game of Tron. You remember Tron? Mm. <laughs> it's like stars. It seems like Starship Troopers sometimes. You know, the, uh, they just keep coming, but. Um, yeah, I, I, you, it's about. I think it's more about trying to get centered yourself. You, you got to be centered in your life. You got to be balanced as balanced as you can in your life and managing your yourself to fight the information warfare. You know what? You can never win the information warfare warfare game. You can't win. It's it's a war you can never win because information never stops. Uh, so it's just it's just a battle and. Mm-hmm. It's just something, yeah, it's going to be something that you do if you're, if you're good at it. The, the good thing is the more, the more you're in the ecosystem and you understand the different iterations and cycles of, of propaganda and information manipulation, dissemination, and you can deconstruct all these little set pieces and, and you, you understand the genealogy of, 
of propaganda information and how people react to it, then you can recognize the patterns a lot quicker. Um, and you, you, you're pretty sure that what you're seeing is what you're seeing. When you hear someone speak, you know where the idea came from. Mm. And, and so with, with age and experience on that front, fighting in this arena comes some uh, wisdom that means that you can move quicker in your figuring out what you're looking at and maybe how to counter it in an argument. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I'm not an expert on any particular field, um, but I am an expert on propaganda um, is I think as good as anyone, because I've taken the university level classes and been to the eminent lectures on it and the work that, that we've done on it. They're probably the work that you've done and other of our colleagues is, is equally cutting edge, if not more so than anything that I've seen in academia, um, with an exception of Piers Robinson and Mark Crispin Miller and these guys, um, yes, or organ, yeah, organization and propaganda studies and David Miller, and uh, amazing de- dedication to this craft. But um, yeah. So yeah, that's the I, I, it's all around us. It's all around us. We are sources of propaganda as well. We're all propagandizing. Yeah. Everybody's a propagandist. Every you know everyone's so. But you but know my, my propaganda back- is better than yours. That, that you're that's right. Yes. That, that's essentially what it is. Yeah. Say yeah. I, I like good propaganda, but I'm against bad propaganda. <laughs> how, how do you describe which one's good or bad? Well, I just know. It's like anonymous <laughs> accounts on Twitter. Someone says, "Do you like the? Do you think they should get rid of anonymous accounts?" And I'm like, "No, no. The, uh, the, the good. An- I like the good anons, but not the bad anons." <laughs> so you know, I think yeah, maybe we can get rid of the bad ones, but keep the good ones. So how do you know mm. which ones are good or bad? I just know. I just know. I got a vibe. <laughs> no, I. So my background is my first. My first life was was an artist. Okay. So I was an artist and then I became a graphic designer out of that because I was told I, you could never make a living as an artist. Well, that's so, true. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know I met some really wealthy artists after later in life and I thought, wow, maybe I made the wrong decision, but, but you're an artist as well. So you, you know, I look at, I, I spent hours looking at things, very studying details uh, at the microscopic level to recreate the, the, the master's paintings, be it uh, Manet or, you know, doing impressionist uh, versions of, uh, you know, Velasquez or, you know, Rubens or something like that. And so, and then drawing as well, you know, long drawing studies of fruit baskets or life drawing or uh, architecture. And so I think, I think it's, it, that that whole time is studying i was studying i was studying the object i was studying the object i was looking you you constructing the object and that's what that's you know so when i left the art world and i got into the world of words um it's also a world of images because a narrative is just an image a narrative is describing an image it's a story that's all it is so i think uh if you have a background in art and the artists musicians painters cartoonists, um, satirists, filmmakers, photographers, they have the ability to, to reform, to reform reality in in a way that no one in science can do. 
um, and that no financial or whatever genius or f- even philosophers can't do. And nobody can understand a good philosopher anyway. <laughs> nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. But so the artist has that special talent. And, um, and you see that, don't you, with poets. Mm. You see, you, you, they can boil down the universe into a few lines. Well, yeah, and cartoonists are among the best at this, is being able to tell a gigantic story with total, all these different angles in one little scene. Yeah, that's that's a set piece of of satire or comedy. I'll, and, I was going to ask you if 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 you're able to to uh, paint a picture as good as your thousand words. I think at one time I. Yeah, I'd, I'm out of practice, but I, I was pretty. I, was, I wasn't bad before. I my I, yeah, I was pretty good. I was pretty good. If I kept going, I probably would have been. Um, I was I was good, um, but yeah, I don't know. Not now. I need to get. I, I'm at, I'm way out of shape uh, on art, but um, but my problem is now is I can't keep to a thousand words. I, I ended up doing five or six or seven or eight thousand. And the wow, editor, that's a lot. The, Editor says you got to trim that down to four and a half. I'm like, I can't. You, know, you get in a fight. <laughs> he said, No, you have to give me an extra three pages on this on this spread. So I, I write for New Dawn Magazine in Australia. It's an awesome publication, and um, uh, and yeah, I'm constantly pushing the envelope on the length of the pieces. But sometimes when you you, you start getting into the deep dive of the big subject, you it's hard to cap it off, but that's a, that's a better art form is being able to write a shorter article. And, um, I used to be good at shorter articles and I'm no longer good at that. Now I just, uh, I do exhaustively long pieces and that, that take days and I can't do anything else when I'm writing. I just have to clear the decks. This is the problem with writing. You got to clear the decks. You can't do anything. And, mm. and you and you got to spend most of the day just messing around, kind of looking at your pen and looking out the window and doing things, just getting ready to jump back in again. But you, nothing too taxing. Um, otherwise, you know. So the, there's writing's a funny process. It's a funny. It's a totally unpredictable, counterintuitive for me anyway. Process: a stop, start, stop, stop for two days, go intensely for. 24 hours stop and then pick it up a week later and then right before the deadline do that self-torturing exercise where you're like why am i up at 5 a.m trying to write this i should have done this a month ago i had the assignment back a month ago but yeah i guess that's part of the waiting for the magic to come you know right before the deadline patrick where can i follow your work um 21st century wire that's our mothership so that they've been going since uh, late 2009. So that's 21st Sundays is the Sunday wire radio show. That's a podcast radio uh, live and recorded. And that's on Sunday at 5 PM UK time, 12 PM, roughly USA time. And then Monday to Friday, TNT radio, TNT radio dot live, or pick it up from our Twitter account or Facebook, whatever. And that's that's four till six. We're going to be seven. Actually, it's going to be five till five till seven now, Monday to Friday. And then Fridays, I'm live on television with the UK column.org, which is the UK's uh, oldest and biggest, best alternative media outlet. Brian Garish. Yeah. Brian Garish. Yeah. Mike Robinson. Yeah. Brian Garish. Mike Robinson. So Mike from Natural News. 
No, that's Mike Adams. Yeah, uh, Mike Adams. Of course. Yeah, Sorry. different. That's a different Mike. Mike Robinson's uh, from Northern Ireland, but he's British, so he's part of the the UK columns uh, uh, core team. Yeah, so he's the editor, the UK column. Yeah. Um, so that's Fridays. Yeah, one p.m. UK time. So yeah, I've got seven live shows a week. Um, yeah. Patrick Henningsen, thank you for joining me in the trenches. My pleasure, Jeremy. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.